Hey everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch, TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is Equity, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined this week by two of my faves. I have Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, how are you? I'm feeling good. I have no complaints and it's going to be a jam-packed double show week once again. Triple show week. So if you're around Saturday, we will have an e-commerce themed episode coming at you because there was so much e-commerce news. We literally broke it out into its own show. So if that's your jam Saturday around midday Eastern time, give or take. But we also have Danny Crichton here. Danny, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I mean, we always talk about unpacking the numbers behind the headlines, but I feel like we need to unpack the headlines from the other headlines because there's just so much news going on these days. We're going to talk about Plaid and Visa, which of course was the biggest kind of single discrete news event of the week. We have some notes about some big exits, some funding rounds. We have an ed tech section. We are going to touch on crypto for a second. And then we are going to talk about SPACs at the end. We put SPACs at the end because we don't like them. But they're also important. So they go, they go at the very end of the show where the least people are still here. I think that's that's the overall <laughs> list. Natasha, do you want to um, lead us into Plaid? Alex, as you alluded, this was the story of the week for anyone and everyone who cares about startups and VC. The $5.3 billion deal that would have merged Plaid and Visa officially didn't go through. For those following along, that deal had been under investigation and ran into that regulatory wall. And now that it's not going through, there's a lot to talk about. What were both of your first takes, Alex and then Danny? My first take was, holy crap followed by, oh, and I'm not surprised. The news event happened, caught me off guard because I didn't know it was coming. But my second thought was like, oh, the DOJ was against this. Not a huge surprise. That was my take. Danny? I think there's a huge amount of concern around financial services, more than other forms of tech companies. When you look at financial services, they're so well integrated in the economy. Everything else is built on top of finance, right? And so I think for the antitrust authorities looking at tech deals, they're seeing this and they're saying, look, if Visa is able to corner the banking data market and own the infrastructure, both at payments and with banking, that's an immensely powerful and highly leveraged place to be. And I think the antitrust authorities have just gotten a lot smarter about preventing that from happening in the first place. I think they've woken up. I'm amazed at what was allowed to go through before versus what now seems to be suddenly verboten. Why wasn't this the case, you know, in the last five, 10 years? Finance is not new, whereas I think ad markets were new. Obviously, we've talked a lot about antitrust and ad networks with Google buying DoubleClick and Facebook buying Anavo and a bunch of other companies, but those were new markets. And so the regulators, I just don't think, knew the potential network effects that were going to come out of those markets. Whereas in finance, the regulators are very intimately familiar with the leverage points. And, and frankly, other competitors know what's going on as well. So my guess is this MasterCard went to the regulators and said, whoa, 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 you've got to do something here to stop this. This is really, really bad. Yelp did this against Google, but Yelp didn't have the leverage that I think MasterCard or other companies who've been around a long time have. 
Natasha, I'm curious, have you heard any scuttlebutt or notes from the earlier stages of the startup market? Any fintech VCs that you know or startups in this space that might have a perspective that we lack in this conversation? I was joking about this, but it seems like everyone cheered on the deal publicly, but didn't think it was smart for a while now. We see coverage of Better Tomorrow Ventures months ago calling out that it's probably not going to happen and it's probably great news for Plaid, which will probably go through a SPAC one day. But the general sentiment is that fintech is bigger than a single deal's failure, quote unquote. Failure might not even be too strong of a word. And early stage startups are still really excited. I want to give a shout out to what Plaid did share with TechCrunch. It said that it saw 60% customer growth in 2020, brought more than 4,000 clients. And so it, it's growing. It will probably go for bigger than $5.3 down the road. The question that we have is how big was it when the Visa deal was announced a year ago? How big is it now? I talked to the Plaid CEO, Zach Parrott. We're pretty sure, Zach, that's how you pronounce your last name. There was a big discussion about Paray and Para and so forth, but we're pretty hey, sure Parrott. So he's not named after Fizzy Water. I, I promise you that. <laughs> It was interesting to hear him talk about how the deal made sense at the time it was announced for Plaid and how now he feels that this is the right way forward. And the question then is, what changed in that one year interim? I think it's two things. One, COVID accelerated a move to fintech away from traditional banking across a number of categories that probably made Plaid's business all the more important and active, I would presume. And also, you know, valuations have gone up in the last year. During a year's growth and probably 5.3 felt a little bit low. He would not tell me much about growth or numbers, sadly, because he was properly media trained. But I'm not shocked to hear that people are pretty optimistic about this for Plot, presuming it's as good of a business as, you know, Danny, everyone told us it was a year ago. Not to take a con point of view, but I do think that the whole point of a tie up here was Visa has these relationships with a lot of the financial institutions that Plaid relies on, but does not have great contractual support, right? Now that they don't have that, they're back to being independent again. And the banks are trying to build their own API infrastructures to allow data to be moved out in a safe and effective way without Plaid. Do I think that that means they are not worth anything? No, I actually think they're going to be fine. But that's now a new open question that was closed with that acquisition. I'll end with what everyone's take was when they first heard the news. It's going to go public through a SPAC. It doesn't need Visa. It was a surprise because traditionally SPACs have been a vehicle that isn't the most ideal way to go public. If you have healthy financials, which Plaid appears to have from the very few growth metrics they've shared. Alex, though, it seems like Zach said that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen, at least in the near term. SPACs, aka blank check companies, aka the thing we'll talk about later on in more detail for a couple of reasons. But if I am Plaid, I'm not in a rush to go public. I have lots of access to private funds. Why would I go public via a strange mechanism that will enrich other people more than my own shareholders? It's, it's stupid. And I think that it just goes to show how much silly hype there is in the market today, which underscores the conditions that we're in today. Well, Alex, talking about hyped up exits in a more traditional format, we learned this year that Nuvia, a next generation Silicon company based in Silicon Valley, the actual Silicon Valley of Silicon, sold to Qualcomm for $1.4 after only, I want to say like literally 20 months of work. It's actually an incredible story. So in 2019, the company raised $53 million from a whole bunch of chip VCs. Earlier last year, raised $240 million in Series B, led by Mithril, and basically in less than two years sold for $1.4 billion. The founders were actually star engineers of the A-Series chips for the Apple iPhone and iPad. So if you're familiar with the M1, I don't think they literally worked on it at the end there, but the apotheosis of their careers, they were all there collectively for a very long period of time at Apple, was to build out this entire program to make Apple the leading chip designer. 
and specifically around performance per watt. What they wanted to do with Nuvia was to bring that to the data center. And so the idea was all these AI workflows are going to the data center. How do we optimize those so that data centers don't use all the power and energy they use? They're more climate centric. You can cool them better, et cetera, et cetera. Qualcomm bought them. Obviously, a lot of stuff going on with Qualcomm with 5G. They're going to integrate with the 5G team and work on the Snapdragon line of chips. I got a question about this. To me, Nuvia raising a lot of money when they were younger, like the Series A makes a lot of sense. You have a couple of you know well-known engineers. You know you have the technical backbone to really take on the market. And the market they're going after, data centers, is enormous, as we all know. So there's a proven TAM, proven experience. I, I get the money. I also kind of get the Series B. Throw a bunch more money at it, early progress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What I don't get is the exit price. To me, $1.4 billion is either way too much or way too little. If the company is as good as its Series A and B investors thought, why is it only selling for 1.4? I can't quite figure out what happened here. Well, it's not clear. Obviously, the technology with any silicon is very early. You don't just build out a new chip in 18 months. They have demoed some parts of their technology, but it's hardly ready for production. The big question, though, was this lawsuit. Late, I believe, in uh, 2019 or maybe early 2020, Apple, the former employer for the three co-founders, sued one of the co-founders, Gerald Williams III, who is sort of the star architect of the Apple chip product. Did you just say star architect? I don't think we can allow that word on the show. I think we have to have a forum afterwards. And <laughs> Thank you for star, pausing, Alex. Star architect. The Sir Norman Foster of <laughs> chips. Danny, I, I'm not even listening to your current jokes. I'm still mad about three jokes ago. But anyways, keep going. <laughs> so Apple sued one of the co-founders for breach of contract, arguing that he had attempted to pull in his team from Apple to work at Nuvia while still sort of employed by the company. He's countersued. He's counterclaimed. They've been in discovery for the last year. And the latest motions were actually just filed three, four weeks ago. So one of the big open questions that I had was, you know, obviously Qualcomm's a major supplier of Apple. Can Qualcomm sort of settle that lawsuit while also pulling in these architect and chip design teams? So I think it's a win-win. Obviously, it's super early. My guess is they didn't want to exit this early. But hey, if you're going to exit in 19, 20 months, a $1.4 billion exit minus some debt ain't a bad sort of exit. I loved Danny's lead in the story. He basically wrote, you know what's great? Becoming a unicorn in two years. You know what's even better? Exiting at unicorn status in two years. Yeah, but it's the point of this show to look at a $1.4 billion exit in 20 months and go, this looks like crap. That's why (laughs) we have jobs affirming on these exit values, let's talk about what has to be one of the most crazy stories that I've seen in the last two, three weeks in the exit market, which was Affirm yesterday. I mean, Alex, they just burnt up the public market. So Affirm is a buy now, pay later fintech company that serves essentially online retailers. If you ever bought something online, you've seen a button for this, you know, use Affirm, five payments of X at, you know, X percentage rate. There's a number of players that do this. Affirm has grown quite a lot. As we discussed on the show, it grew during Peloton's boom because it finances a lot of Peloton bikes for a lot of people. So it's kind of a high ticket item, fits well into the Affirm rubric. And then it was going to go public. And we were all pretty excited about this because Max Levchin is in it. So the PayPal mafia is around and there's a lot of famous people with money in it. And it's well known, blah, 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 blah. And then it raised its range from $33 to $38 a share to $41 to $44. Now, Natasha, that's pretty good, but not shocking. Like, it's not like, oh my gosh, whatever pricing. Then it priced at $49 a share. And I was like, oh boy, this is getting pretty spicy. There's a lot of demand for this company. And then today, it's currently up 27% at $122 a share. Now, you might think that this is another example of IPOs being mispriced by bankers who are screwing everyone over. I have a different hypothesis. All the private investors who put money into the company in its last round, they're the real bandits because they paid $19 a share for a company that was worth not much longer, $122 a share. So all the VC complaints about bankers screwing their startups out of money is really just them feeling annoyed that someone else is going to the bank with a wheelbarrow full of money for stuff they didn't actually do. 
That's my hypothesis. Affirm though confirms that the IPO market is still just as dumb this year as it was last year. That's my take. The narrative that I am most taken by with this Affirm IPO is the Shopify dynamic. I remember when they launched that partnership, Shopify had invested in Affirm, just an investor, not any acquisition or anything like that. Six months after that partnership, Shopify has officially made $2 billion with the IPO. Absurd. Yeah, Shopify, the famously poor and struggling for cash. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think when, when, when that partnership first went through, I was like, what a great big move for a firm. They're so lucky. Distribution is everything. And now Shopify is definitely patting itself on the back. Toby is the Shopify CEO and a big gamer. Maybe he can buy a StarCraft 2 from Blizzard and keep investing in it so it doesn't get sunsetted. Not that I'm asking a very specific request from the CEO, but that's exactly <laughs> what I want to happen. Sorry, Danny, what was your take on, on the pricing and then the debut? You're a former VC. I agree. I mean, what was crazy is that a firm actually pulled from the market and similar to Roblox was like, oh, this is scary. It's a little frothy. And then they went anyway. And, you know, of course it was frothy. Like, I don't think this is going to change, at least for the short term. I agree with you that I think the last round is where the bandits were. That said, what, what was the percentage dilution from that? This is always the key question, right? They didn't sell the whole company at a ridiculous price. They sold a couple points at that price. And look, you know, to a certain degree, I think with COVID moving all this e-commerce and we have an entire e-commerce episode we're going to talk about, which heavily is dependent on the COVID e-commerce boom. You know, a firm just did super well. And of course, one of its biggest companies being Peloton also did super well during this period of time when no one can exercise anywhere outside of their living room. So I think it's actually like a very strong story, but I'm like less pissed off about everything, which is rare for me. Usually I'm the one who's like reconciling your anger with the market, but I feel like we flipped roles this week. My take is because things are so hot, all the companies that were on the fence about going public in kind of now time frame are probably going to pull the trigger. So let's move on. Talk about some early stage stuff. This is a fun one. So we have a B Corp in the auto insurance space called Loop. Natasha, please tell us what is going on with this really interesting seed round. Loop is started by John Henry, who co-founded Harlem Capital, and Carrie Ann Nadeau, who worked at Brookings Institute and MIT. And it's selling an auto insurance policy that's hoping to be more equitable by not using traditional metrics like income, marital status, and education. Instead, using usage-based metrics like what is your history as a driver and what are the roads that you're on? Usage-based insurance has been a thing for over a decade, but Loop's twist on that is that that's solely what it's using to give insurance rates, and it's acting as both the vendor and the broker. So it's both going to be the one figuring out the deals and then giving that money. I think it's a pretty cool company. I know we haven't talked about InsureTech too much on the show, but I know, Alex, you've been covering the bigger companies. What was your read on this round? I'm always amazed at how much space there is in the insurance market. But what I think matters here is insurance is bigger than you think. And one way this was explained to me is that a lot of products in the world of startups are things that you might want to buy. Maybe you want a SaaS tool. Maybe you want a fintech product. Maybe you want an e-commerce checkout technology, whatever. Everyone who drives a car has to have insurance. And so because of that, the TAM is so enormous. There's lots of space for players, both incumbent, medium levels of maturity, and startup. The question is, what is your best model? How quickly can you get customers at the lowest possible acquisition cost and so forth? So I like what Loop is doing here. I think it's got a really neat model. I love the tech behind it. I love the idea of creating a less racist product. That's great. Hell yes. I'm very curious to see how it's going to go to market and manage to generate a good slice of the pie for itself. This round's 3.25 million. That's a reasonable amount of money to get going, but it's going to need a lot more to compete because given that we've seen Metro Mile work VS back to go public, we've seen Root go public, we've seen enormous mega rounds for Hippo, Lemonade went public. So a lot of these neo insurance providers have already crossed the chasm into the late stage of public markets. Loop is at the beginning, you know, so I'm optimistic, but curious, I guess is what I'd say. 
I'll add one anecdote because I got a rare bit of humility during the interview in that they talked about the fundraising process. So as Alex said, it was 3.25 million led by Freestyle VC. And John Henry, who had co-founded that venture from Harlem Capital, said it was not easy to raise. And I think that a lot of second time founders or former ex have an easier time raising, or at least that's the narrative that is often put out as former Pinterest executive and a firm executive right. raise a round. And so John was basically saying we had 77 meetings. It was really hard to convince people in the beginning. We eventually landed on the correct numbers, but he did want to make a point that that's not necessarily going to give you that win. And Loop did opt to go the B Corp route. And so for people who don't know, B Corp doesn't necessarily mean you're giving up on profit, but it's just meaning that you're going to be weighing in being socially conscious, good to your employees and environmentally conscious along with that. Other companies in the space are Guild, an ed tech startup. And so those are some different ways that Loop is standing out right now. I want to bring up another interesting early stage round, which is Mosaic. Denny, this is in your hobby horse wheelhouse. No, hobby. This is in your favorite topic of reinventing the CFO stack. I'm very curious why this round stood out there to you and why you picked it up versus other rounds in the kind of CFO space. I mean, obviously, every function in the business has been completely renovated in the last 10 years. If you look at sales folks, they started with Salesforce. They probably are still on Salesforce, but there's now a ton of infrastructure built on top of Salesforce to make sales much more manageable. Marketing, the tooling has just gotten so much better. I mean, can you imagine the people used to call like classified ads and now we have, you know, live on the both the demand and supply side, real-time bidding, et cetera. But then you go to the CFO office and the innovation there has just been slower. One is the ERP systems, the enterprise resource planning, which operates all the cash flow and all the resources in a company and tracks it, particularly for public market companies. They're huge conglomerate infrastructures are Oracle, SAP, Siemens. It's very, very slow to get a lot of this in. And then the other piece is that the next wave of companies, companies like Anaplan, and then Workday has a product here that for a company they bought in 2019, I believe for 2 billion bucks, they were sort of V1. I mean, it's actually kind of interesting that CFOs are sort of like an entire generation of products behind. And so Mosaic is trying to come in and say, how do we like actually build the kind of modern web 2.0, completely notionized version of finance product that a CFO deserves today in 2021? And uh, what I thought was particularly interesting is that the three founders collectively worked at Palantir overlapping five years on the finance team. And so they actually, Palantir built out its own tooling. Like they actually wrote their own code. They had an engineering team in the finance wing because they were dealing with both wanting to scale heavily in that period of time. They went from, I want to say 150 employees to like 1,000 or 2,000. They went from a couple of customers to customers around the world in 20 countries. And they just didn't have these tools in place. So they actually built it out from scratch. They're essentially wanting to do that for every other company around the world. And so Mosaic announced today on Thursday that they raised an 18.5 million Series A led by Trevor Oshig at GC. And also sort of pointed out that Ross Rubini of XYZ Ventures, formerly of Village Global, had invested 2.5 million in seed round last year. So a total of 21 million. And they're targeting Series B and C funded companies, companies that are raising those unicorn rounds today. That's their core expertise zone. They started with a couple of smaller companies. They've kind of gone up market and they hope to go further up market with this round. Two things. XYZ Ventures invests in a lot of Palantir alum, which I think is really interesting. So if anyone's interested in hearing more about how the Palantir mafia is performing right now, you should check out them. I think we have a profile up about it. But Danny, I was curious and confused why no one has touched the CFO stack. It seems like a great blind spot to be a part of. But do you know why that was so avoided by tech? There's so many apps out there. (laughs) It, it has like so many features that sort of prevents new entrants uh, from getting in. For one, it's a very conservative part of most organizations. You know, in sales, you need to be competitive. You need to compete with other companies. Whoever has the best tooling is going to win in sales or marketing or a lot of other functions. 
that's not necessarily the case in finance, right? You can screw things up. You know, if you misaccount for something, you go to prison. It's a very different sort of setup. Two, it's not very collaborative, right? In most companies, the finance wing is not something that everyone in the company sort of talks to. We're at a large publicly traded company. Like we get emails at the end of the quarter that are like, please insert all of your revenue generating information into the ERP system. And if you don't, you will be fired. And like, that's the level of collaboration is like this gun to your head model. And so there wasn't a lot of demand to say, hey, maybe we should like get more insight on what's going on. The last is, frankly, because of the existing tools, people spend most of their time editing data, cleaning up and munging data. They don't get a lot of time to actually do the strategic planning that CFOs are supposed to do. So for instance, and this is particularly true of growth stage companies, what if we tripled headcount this year? What would that do? There's a lot of scenario planning that a lot of CFOs never even get a really around to doing. Anaplan is one example of a competitor in the space. They're publicly traded. It's a $10 billion market cap company. It's kind of nuts. Like one of the biggest competitors in the space is only worth $10 billion. So two really brief things and then we need to move on to ed tech. But one, Natasha, to your question, I think we are seeing companies work on this now. If you think about the enormous amount of money that's gone into what are called corporate spend startups, which is Danny's favorite phrase, companies that are just trying to help companies figure out who's spending money and better control it just to help the CFO suite. Uh, they raised a ton of money in the last couple of years because the problem was so large and software is now breaking into it. But I think Denny is right. We're just behind. Well, not we, but the industry is just behind. And then this example of a company's founders being formerly of a big co, having internal tech, going outside that company and building it for everyone else is what we've seen with a company called BuildBuddy out of Y Combinator recently. Google has an in-house development tool called Blaze. And then the external version is called Basil. It's open source. And so BuildBuddy is building framework around Basil to make it more like Blaze so you can develop like your Google if you're not in Google. And I'm like 80% sure I got that right. <laughs> last point, because now I think we have a trend story that's happening, <laughs> is that last week I covered Rewatch, which is building a GitHub internal tool externally with that online video repository. And I'm imagining that part of this remote work impact is how do we talk about things in a collaborative open door way all of a sudden? And so a lot more of that. I'm still really, I mean, I'm hopeful, but I don't know how true that's actually going to be down the road. But I think we have a trend story. We have two last things to do before we let you go. We're going to fit them in here at the end. We are going to talk about a really interesting ed tech accelerator. And then we're going to briefly touch on the latest SPAC news just so you're up to date and you're not behind when you're on FinTech Twitter. Natasha, please tell us all about Supercharger and why they've dissed fintech itself. Supercharger Ventures just announced its debut virtual edtech accelerator. There's two things that make it interesting. As Alex mentioned, it used to be a fintech accelerator, had graduated 49 companies. And this year, it's choosing to pivot to edtech because it thinks that banks are cutting innovation funding and struggling to stay open in the pandemic. They see edtech as a more bullish long-term place to be right now, which I don't know how many people agree with them. I don't think many. I will be completely candid, even though I love reporting on edtech. I think that's a very crazy thing to say. But the second thing that makes them interesting is that they're actually going to bet on B2B edtech. Most unicorns in edtech right now are B2C because it's easier to get an end user that's a parent or student to pay than an educational institute. So two very bearish takes that they are being bullish on. And, and so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, their first companies, about six companies, 12-week accelerator, they're interesting. It'll be cool to track them. I think we've seen over the last couple of months the proof point that finally folks are realizing that edtech is maybe way more successful outside of the United States and the Americas. So when I, I saw this, I was like, Supercharger is the first folks who actually understand that Duolingo, Hotmart, all these companies are doing well in emerging markets, industrialized markets, everywhere but the US. And for whatever reason, Americans don't like spending money on education except in college, where they're willing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the right brand name on their diploma. 
But in most of the rest of the world, there's huge infrastructures. We see this with Baiju's in India, huge amounts of money, billions and billions and billions spent on online education in China, in Korea, in Japan, all throughout Europe. And to me, it makes total sense to actually focus on B2B, EdTech, not America. And I, I feel like they're the only accelerator I've ever seen that actually got the formula right. So I'm super excited to see what the cohort does and see what they're able to perform. Who is this person that has replaced cynical Danny with optimistic Danny? That's like the third nice thing you've said on the show. That's like more than I get out of in a month from you, usually. <laughs> What's going on? Say, Did well, you sleep well last night? I mean, look, cryptos are up. Everything's up and to the right. My mother called and her stock portfolio is up massive percentage points. And I don't have a stock portfolio because I'm an ethical journalist. So I was like, good for you, mom. But I, I will uh, say like, there's a lot this. of positive news. I'm going to rescue this brand <laughs> because that's going to go on for seven minutes. I can see it coming. We are going to talk about two individual companies that want to become stocks including Bact, which is a cryptocurrency uh, thingamabob that is going to go public via a SPAC, and then also SoFi, which is going to go public via a SPAC. So Danny, I want you to make a pitch to the listeners out there about why it makes sense for Bact, B-A-K-K-T, to go public via a SPAC. Tell them why this makes well, sense. Well, that's unfair. Let me separate that in two ways. First of all, I actually am relatively enthusiastic about SPACs. I feel like everyone gives them such a bad rap, particularly you, Alex. You've become the curmudgeonly person on this show. Let me tell you, I think people think that SPACs are this whole like concept. And I think we have to focus in on like, what do they solve? They solve the IPO process. That's it. They do not. Open Door is a great example of this where, oh my God, there's COVID. Oh, house sales. I don't know what's going to happen. You just can get them onto the public markets in a way that you can't with a traditional roadshow through Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, et cetera. So I actually think they solve a very small problem. I actually think they're massively blown up compared to what they actually do. But if we focus on that problem, it's very valuable. So for Bact, the bullish case here is it's a crypto company that's trying to make it easier to have a digital wallet of tokens. So not just yes. crypto like Bitcoin or Ethereum, but they also do tokens and they include everything from, according to them, frequent flyer programs, loyalty points, Starbucks points, whatever the heck you want. Bact is what it's for, which is backed by NYC's parent company, Intercontinental Exchange. Now, what's interesting here is by going public, they're actually able to get better relationships with the companies they need to work with. They'll have the working capital to go forward. I believe they have, what, $500 million in cash? And it's now going to be public, so you're actually going to know more about the company. Now, the downside is, obviously, it doesn't really have anything going on. You showed this, Alex, in your article. They compare Robinhood to Bact with a similar graph, except Robinhood is actual data built on performance the last five years. Bact is a projection of them literally sketching out, like, this is what we're going to do the next five years. Right. So here's the thing. Danny's right. SPAC should go public via SPAC because it shouldn't go public at all. So that's why the SPAC <laughs> makes sense. If you can't tell me what your revenue is, don't go public. You're sounding like a Warren Buffett value investor. But look, here's what I think. That's it, how I was it, raised. I think of it as, in the biotech world, as an example, it is not uncommon for companies to go public after you know phase one clinical trials where there are no revenue. There is a provable technology. And people are able to bet on the public markets on the belief that they are going to either get bought by Pfizer or some other large pharmaceutical giant or build their own revenue structure over the coming years. I see no reason why folks can't invest today when it's unproven. Like essentially, this is crowdfunding, but on the public markets. And the better part is it's actually regulated. They're legally required to disclose what's happening. It's far more transparent than traditional crowdfunding on crowdfunding platforms where you get the investor note, which is two paragraphs of BS. So I actually think it's very enthusiastic. You don't have to invest if you don't believe it. And if you do, you have the opportunity to do so, whereas in the past you would not. And I, I think that's a, a much more powerful and exciting world to be in. I will throw my hat into the ring. I think a lot of things can be true about SPACs at the same time. SPACs can help close the liquidity gap. SPACs can make good companies go public that need an extra push. SPACs can do a lot of things. And we also don't know long term how SPACs have been performing at least the ones that have gone public in and around the pandemic. 
one data source had 165 SPACs were listed between January to October 2020. There's a lot that we don't know yet. And a lot of things can be true at the same time. And I think painting it in broad strokes, not saying you guys are doing that, but generally the conversation to be anti or pro SPAC can be a problem, even though it's much more fun and interesting to listen to the anti or pro arguments. So turning over to another SPAC that we really need to care about is SoFi. Now, SoFi is a company you've heard of. There's a stadium named after them, the SoFi Stadium, where the Los Angeles Rams play. And if you're a Rams fan, you had a much better year than I did as an Eagles fan. Screw you. Now, this was an interesting one because I expected SoFi to go public. And uh, so to see a company that could potentially go public pursue a SPAC is interesting. I think there are some good reasons why SoFi might pursue a SPAC, but I bring it up just to say, watch this one. It's going to be a very high valued investment. It matters. And um, it's also a Chamath deal. So it's going to have a lot of media hype around it. There'll be CNBC hits. There will be Wall Street bets threads. It's going to be exciting. Yeah, we have talk space as well. I mean, it, it was just back heaven and expect more of this coming as more of these SPACs hit their time limits. Talkspace, which is an online therapy startup through text and video chat, had a $1.4 billion deal with a SPAC called Hudson Executive Investment. The company announced that they had 2 million people who had used the platform since 2012 and today has 46,000 active members, 2,600 providers, theoretically in all 50 states. It's a subscription service, so it fits the SPAC model super, super well valued decently compared to the amount of capital that fundraised. The only other piece of news I want to throw out there real quick before we close out the show, the SoftBank Vision Fund. This used to be basically a SoftBank Vision Fund branded podcast at one point. Now we don't get to talk about them a lot because they don't really invest as much as they used to, but they did close a SPAC this week, 604 million. That's above their original range of 500 to 600 million. I'm curious if SoftBank will SPAC one of its own companies. I think that's a, a normal question to have. Obviously, that could be a conflict of interest and not make sense long term. But all I have to say is I'm sad that SoftBank sold back its stake on WAG because we could have seen a dog walking startup become a public company. And now there are so many regrets, I'm sure. I don't know how to make a joke <laughs> out of that at the very end. That's our show. Don't forget, we have an e-commerce addendum coming on Saturday. So if you're listening to this on Thursday or Friday, that's coming up. So much is going on in e-commerce. We couldn't help but talk about it. But in the meantime, Natasha, Danny, thank you for all your hard work during a busy week. And of course, shout out Grace, our, our producer who's keeping us alive while Chris is off with his new baby. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.